Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Motos and Friends podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. To start this week off we've chosen to highlight some of the new machines announced in the past week. We're coming up to new motorcycle season when the manufacturers roll out their new models and so editor Don Williams takes us through some of the newly announced machines, such as the new Suzuki GSX S1000 GT, the Yamaha YZF R6 GYTR, Triumph's new Speed Triple 1200RR, the Motoguzi V1000 Mandelo, and last but not least, the new retro-styled Kawasaki Z650 RS. In the second segment, associate editor TJ Adams follows up with bike builder and long-distance rider John Tagley, who recently completed his 24-hour endurance run as promised. John takes us through his various preparations and the effort it took to complete his personal mileage best. I won't spoil the surprise, but I can tell you he managed to put on more miles in 24 hours than a lot of people do in one year. I hope you enjoy the show. One of the most interesting new bikes is the 2022 Suzuki GSX-S 1000 GT. Now, for a few years now, we've kind of been uh, discussing the demise of sport touring bikes, but they seem to be making a comeback, which uh, adventure bikes had seemingly stolen sport touring bikes thunder. And I think that people are now starting to say, well, adventure bikes are good, but not everybody likes the high seat height. And they certainly don't need the long travel suspension of an adventure bike if they're just going to be touring on the street. So Suzuki took the GSX S1000, which we're quite fond of. It's an inline four based on an older version of the GSX R1000 motor, and it turned into a sport tour. And they didn't do a whole lot to it, and they really didn't need to. They just needed to set it up in a way that you could, uh, you know, be more comfortable touring rather than uh just simply you know doing sport rides you know a day at your house so i mean the first thing you see is the plastic there's much more plastic than there was it's a, it's a full fairing and uh they have a new tail section they have a new seat and all that's to accommodate the passenger underneath that seat is a new subframe that's beefier to accommodate again a passenger all the time plus the bags and uh, the bags, you know, that make this, makes it a sport tour. And so when you look at the bike, it looks like a, you know, a great sport touring bike in the uh, vein of the Ninja 1000 SX. And so I think that they, we have a fun sport touring shootout coming up with these two bikes. But other changes include there's a, the foot pegs and handlebars are rubber mounted, just keep you a little bit more comfortable. You won't have quite as sharp handling you know because you have rubber mounting but i i don't think that's going to bother most people who are out you know touring around enjoying the country and another thing they did is they put in a full ride-by-wire system and a six and a half inch tft display oh really yeah we all love the tft displays sure and uh looking at the pictures of it uh you know it's going to have a big speedometer on it and then all the other little pieces of information and you'll be able to set it up however you'd like to set it up awesome I, I think it's a good-looking bike. Weirdly, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the old Aprilia Futura. Do you remember that? Sure. And I always always loved that bike. And 
the GT, I think it's the sort of, it's kind of got an updated version of that kind of styling, but I like it. It's, it's kind of edgy and, and I thought it looked great actually. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great looking bike. The, the uh, standard GSX S1000 looks good. Right. And I think the fairing on this makes it look even, you know, more sporty, Yeah, but it's also now set up for touring. Right. So uh, we're looking forward to that. The price on the basic version is 11,299 bucks, which is not too bad. Right. But it's certainly competitive with the adventure bikes in, in the leader size. And uh, again, not everybody was going to want a Suzuki V-Strom 1050 to go sport touring on. Right. They might want a real sport tour. Right. And uh, this gives them that option. And, it, and Suzuki was able to build this bike without starting from scratch. You know, they just made some modifications that, uh, that were necessary to, to accommodate the extra weight and uh, the extra protection that you would want from the elements when you're touring. And uh, they got a new bike. It's funny. I don't know if this is true, but, but they always made the GSX S1000 in two versions. They had the sort of the naked version and then they had the F, um, which had the kind of half fairing on it. And there was nothing wrong with that bike at all. In fact, I, I rode it at the launch, but somehow the naked version always sort of inspired everybody a lot more and that was the bike that i've seen like two of the f version on the road you know in in all the time they've been out but i've seen lots of the naked version ones out there so it's kind of interesting if if the gt will clearly it's going to replace the f version and I think it might it might ignite people a little more just because it's a really good looking bike this one okay and next up is the 2022 yamaha yzf r6 gytr now this is a bike that i've been bugging yamaha and other manufacturers to build this type of bike for over a decade <laughs> always what this is in case you don't you know you don't keep track of this is the yzf r6 gytr is a track only version of the of the r6 doesn't have lights it's not street legal ecu isn't set up for emissions it's 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 not like a full-on race bike but it's a basis for a full-on race bike and i always ask the different manufacturers i said you know you build off-road bikes for racing you know motocross bikes cross-country bikes but they're always dirt why don't you build a track bike you know an off not not street legal bike for the paved tracks like you do for dirt tracks and they always just kind of shuffled around right i think they felt like there was obviously they, <laughs> the reason always it's going to be the same they don't think there's a market for it so this time they're at least going to give it a try and this follows um, in the footsteps but last year they offered this in europe and they call it the race okay so uh so now it's here and uh certainly an interesting idea and i hope it's successful because uh people should be able to buy just like they can buy a motocross bike or they can buy a cross-country bike they should buy, be able to buy a track bike and have it you know just not have to worry about stripping all the electronics off and the mirrors and the lights and all this other stuff i guess from yamaha's perspective it actually kind of makes sense because they don't have to worry about all the various street legal, you know, things. I mean, the, the R6 is essentially a race bike anyway. Um, it was a sort of street legal one. So now that they've stopped, stopped selling them for the street, why not just, you know, just stop mucking around and just put it out as a, as a track bike? It actually makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, the big thing 
right away that you know makes it the difference between a street bike and a, a pure track bike because it's got an acropovic uh full race exhaust system on it and an ecu nice. that matches it so right there you're going to get full power from the motor you don't have to worry about you know the tailpipe sniffers in government uh mm -hmm. saying you can't do that and that's great it's also got a quick shifter but this is the weird thing it's up only and it's like come on yamaha it's 2021 right why is your quick shifter up only that is old technology and we have up down quick shifters that's pretty much the standard now so why it's up only i cannot tell you but on the good side for right. the racers uh, it has a re reverse shifting kit so it's down for up okay up for down and it has rear sets foot pegs are even farther back than the street bike so that's you know that's getting serious right uh, they have a heavier duty chain and another thing nick will like nick DeSena, our senior editor he's always complains about rubber hydraulic lines on sport bikes sure well the the gytr has stainless steel hydraulic brake lines so that's cool sure. and they have something that's kind of interesting a gytr part on there it's called a abs emulator and that's so the ecu isn't constantly thinking the abs isn't working because there's no abs on the bike it has something that, that tells the, the computer, oh, yeah, the ABS, that's doing great. Don't worry about it, even though there's ABS on the bike. <laughs> that's kind of cool. And they also get, with this bike, you get a, a racing seat, a fuel cap, a cool fuel cap, which is probably not, you know, emissions, stand, you know, acceptable, and a, a racing kill switch. Right. And obviously no lights. Yeah, no lights, nothing, no mirrors, nowhere to put a uh, license plate on it. In fact, I'm sure Yamaha is sweating bullets. And probably one of the things that they're worried about is that people are going to try to street legalize this bike, which they will be able to do in some states. Right. Okay. So that's that's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, you know, because dirt bikes, you can, you can put them on the street in Arizona, for instance. It's no big deal to take a, you know, even a side-by-side, -side, make it street legal. And you can do the same with right. a, 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 like a cross-country race bike. So, It'll be interesting to see how many of these bikes we see show up on the uh, on the road with Arizona plates or somewhere else. <laughs> but the, the one thing that might slow that down is that the list price is eighteen thousand three hundred ninety nine bucks. Now, you know, if you just want another street bike, you can do quite well for that amount of money, and not have to monkey with you know putting lights on this, but you would have to do so. You have to get different fairing. You have to put a whole wiring loom on it. You know, it'd be a lot of work. So. It may not happen, but it'll be interesting to see how, how that all plays out. Sure. The bottom line is it's cool that this is being done, you know, and I've heard some people complain that the price is a little high and, you know, it's not cheap. Race bikes usually aren't cheap, but if just the fact that Yamaha is doing it is a great thing. I agree. Something that we encourage and hope they continue to, uh, you know, maybe there'll be an R1 GYTR, a serious racer. That'd be cool. But, or even actually even better, an R3 GYTR for up and coming riders who want to start, you know, going to the track and getting going, but don't want to worry about all the stuff, you know, street bike stuff, and they're never going to ride their R3 on the street anyway. So, and then Kawasaki can join in and, right. and their Ninja 400, they can have a Ninja 400 SR, I think it's the letters they would probably use for it. And that would be great. So this is a, to me, a really welcome development and, and kudos to Yamaha for, for filling this need that I think has definitely been out there. I, I would agree with that entirely. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, track day junkies will love it.
Yeah, I think they'll sell them. We'll see. And cross our fingers that they do, because if they do, we'll see more. Sure. Okay. We also have the 2022 Triumph Speed Triple 1200RR. Now, Triumph is really good at putting out little variations on different models. But this, this one is different. This is, this is a big change in the, you know, you have the street triple and the speed triple world. This is a big change. This is the first one in, because this, the speed triple and street triple have always been known as street fighters, naked bikes, very naked and ready to just do, do battle on the street. And that was their look. That was their positioning. They were the original street fighters. Let's go. This one's different. It has a fairing. <laughs> it's the first uh, street triple or speed triple with a fairing. And what they've done is they've taken the speed triple, which was updated this year and given, given a workover, and they put on cafe bars, not right. the, quite as low as a, a, as a super sport bike or a super bike, but pretty low, like way down there. You know, way it, you know they're, they're drooping down from the top of the triple clamps. So it's, it's a totally different sort of, it's not upright. It's not, you know, it's got a fairing. So it's a different take on the speed triple theory. And it's kind of weird. I mean, in a way that they didn't just give it a different name, like the Thruxton, you know, something like that, because you, you kind of have, in my mind, you have this branding for the bike. Right. And then all of a sudden you say, oh, well, now they have fairings sometimes and they, oh, they can have clip-ons, not upright bars. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that Triumph, weren't a little more creative with the naming i mean maybe naming it you know the track triple or the you know the race triple or something but but anyway um you know there it is but the bike sounds quite interesting yeah well the big the big thing is that it has semi-active olean suspension with the latest olean software so you you get the full adjustability the autumn you know the automatic change of damping as you ride you know, some people don't like that for the track. Of course, you can turn that off and you can have the dampy be set. Uh, for the street, I love uh, semi-active suspension. I know, Arthur, you, you're not quite as enamored with it as I am, but that's because you're a better rider than I am. And for just the, the level that I ride, I, I, I think semi-active suspension is the closest thing to magic that I can imagine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, so that, you know, and again, you can always turn it off. Yeah. So, and it's Olin's suspension so you know it's good i was actually very impressed with that suspension when it debuted on the uh the honda cbr 1000 rr at portimao a couple of years ago and uh and they've refined it since then so yeah i mean olins have really really done something special with that suspension so i'm sure it's great yeah and to give you an idea of the ergonomic changes the grips are 5.3 inches lower than the standard b triple 1200 Wow. I mean, that's a long way. Wow. <laughs> you know, and they moved them forward two inches. Wow. So it is a long reach from that seat. And the seat is specific to this bike, but it's a long reach from that seat to those grips. As far as I'm concerned, I would rather ride the bike upright. Now, Nick, who will undoubtedly go do the test of this, will be more than happy to ride it the way they have it. But, but for me, right. it's, it's not my... They didn't build a bike for me, which is fine. Not all the bikes are built for me, even though I do like riding almost everything. But that's uh, that's great. And the uh, foot pegs are also up and back a little bit. That's never a big issue for me, foot peg position. But definitely, I don't like it when the handlebars are that far forward and that that low. Right. All I can think of is some of the worst bikes in the past on that, like uh, 
the Ducati Super Sport 1000 Pulse Smart. It was just, it was like, who does this bike fit? It was like a mile from the seats to the grips. That was actually the Sport Classic range. Sport Classic, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the Sport Classic and the, and that pull, the Paul Smart version and the other one. Remember that? Remember we had that ride down to uh, the Coffee Bean in Malibu, and uh, one of us was riding the Jixxer 750, and I rode the Sport Classic down there. When we got down there, I said, "Don, you're either going to either going to have to swap bikes to go home, or I'm going to have to call an ambulance." It was <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. And the other was, what was that BMW? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the BMW, wasn't it? That version of the R90, the R90 Cafe Racer. Yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. Yeah. I, I mean, basically, the long and short of it is, is I don't mind low bars, but I don't like a long stretch to them. Okay. So, yeah. So the, the seating position is not my personal favorite. I like upright bikes. Uh, in this case, the bars are, you know, the clip-ons are low. They're a long way from the seat. Uh, the, the foot pegs are moved back and up a bit. So great for track riding, great for cafe racing, if you're really, you know, serious about it. Right. Uh, so that's great. And you have, you know, every bike is, is aimed for a different person. And, and the person who wants that look and wants that feel, uh, this is going to give it to them. Yeah, sounds, sounds good. What sort of price are they talking about with this bike? It uh, breaks the $20,000 barrier. It's $20,950. And other goodies you get with it, you know, it's not the suspension. Obviously, is going to cost a lot of money. Uh, the uh, fairings, you know, runs up some. Motor's the same, still puts out 177 horsepower and 92 foot pounds of torque. So you got, you know, plenty of power for almost anybody. It's got uh, some special paint, uh, candy paint, to uh, give it a special look. And I'm sure I've seen the person, so I'm sure it looks nice. great. Person, uh, you get. Pirelli Diablo Super Corsa SP V3 tires. So those are, you know, street legal, but still very track oriented. And if you're really track oriented, uh, they have Super Corsa SC2 V3s for, uh, you know, people who just are not concerned with uh, tire life and just want the best possible or tire life or, you know, rain capability. And you just want the, you know, the best tire, for fastest riding. And again, it's great that those kind of options are available to people uh, that want to go with that. So there's uh, you know, a lot to like about the bike. It looks cool. I think it has the wrong name, but that's, you know, I'm sure they did their due diligence uh, with their, their uh, customers and they decided to go with that name. But as a journalist, I get to complain anyway. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's the story on this uh, Speed Triple 1200RR. Next up, now, this is the big deal, the 2022 Moto Guzzi V100 Mandela. Now, we don't have a lot of information on this. We have almost nothing to go on other than the photos. But what the photos show us is a water-cooled V-twin Moto Guzzi. Now, we knew this had to come someday. And it's uh, Moto Guzzi's 100th anniversary. And uh, why not move forward and, and come up with a, a, you know, the transverse V-twin and uh, still has the, the it's still the transverse top end, longitudinal bottom end, shaft drive. But there's a there's undoubtedly a radiator there in front of the motor, and uh, no fins on the on the cylinders or the head. So it's uh, it's definitely a water cooled bike. Uh, the V100 tells us it's a, it's a 1000, and uh, you know no big deal. 
So uh, we can't really guess what the architecture of the bike is. It looks like it's overhead cam and they've gotten rid of the push rods, but we'll see. It could be double overhead cam. Again, it's hard to tell from the photos. It, uh, the bike does have, is an upright sport bike configuration and kind of a retro modern upright sport bike. It's got a fairing, it's swoopy. Looks pretty, it looks totally cool. And uh, you know, the bars are high and wide. It's gonna be a comfortable bike to ride. Nice. Yeah, so you know, we're just kind of guessing what we're gonna get here. But uh, from what it looks like, you know, it's a it's it's got a single-sided swing arm, single shock in the back, uh, inverted fork, and Brembo brakes, you know, radial mounted. So there's a lot of modern things, just kind of the shape of the bearing and the in the shape of the tank is a little bit not like way retro, not like 60s, 70s, but more like 20 years ago. Okay. So it's gonna be really interesting. There's, there's a lot of things they're going to be able to do with this. When you look at the way it's set up, it's going to be a sport touring bike right away. And I'm sure there's going to be some sort of adventure version, you know, up from the V85 TT, which is theoretically off-roadable. Uh, this one will probably be street street only. So there's there's a lot of uh, opportunities with this bike. But we, uh, you know, I can't wait to ride it. That's all I can say. It looks cool. And uh, and it will and it's it's a big deal for Moto Guzzi to go with liquid cooling after after all these years. And you know, I, I think I think most Moto Guzzi fans would accept this. It's still the same architecture of the motor, and it is know that eventually you're just going to have to have water cooling to patch emissions, zero five, and all that. And if the bike works as well as good as it looks. Nobody's going to have anything to complain about. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. We also have the 2022 Kawasaki Z650 RS. Now I got a hand to Kawasaki. They have gotten a lot of mileage out of that parallel twin 650 motor. You have the Ninja 650, you have the Z650, and you have the Versus 650. There's three right there. Now you have the Z650 RS. And basically what the RS is, as we know from the Z900 RS, is it's the retro style which is, I suppose, what you could say RS stands for. Retro style look for the Z650. So it's got kind of a teardrop tank. You know, it's not totally retro. It's still a liquid-cooled motor. The exhaust has a very modern look. And it's not, you know, two long tubes. You know, it's kind of tucked under the, under the bottom of the bike and then pops out. Uh, the swing arm on one side is straight and the other side is arced. And the arc is to leave room for the exhaust. So you have kind of the whole motor chassis. It's the same trellis-style frame as the Z650, but you get the teardrop tank, you get a flatter, slightly stepped seat, not a, a retro seat where it's kind of all flat, like tug and roll or something like that. It's not quite like that, but it's it's not like a cup modern, truly modern seat. Uh, up front, there's a round headlight, and but it's LED. So you have, again, that mixture of retro and modern. Right. Uh, the two clocks for the tachometer and the speedometer are round. And they have kind of a bullet cowling in the front. So these two like bullet looking things above the uh, headlight. In the back, you have that kind of flat little cowling over the fender, like you used to see on the original Z1 and the uh, Z650 of the late 70s. So they're kind of pulling that in. In fact, in their press photos, they had a picture of this Z650 RS with a, a Z650 from i'm not sure exactly what year it was but it's either the late 70s or early 80s and the cut the coloring is is very reminiscent of the of the original as well 
So they've definitely got that sort of retro kind of look going on. Yeah. And there actually is more to the bike because they didn't just stick these like these pieces on. It, it changed, cha they changed the ergonomics too. And they did it to make me happy, I think. Uh, the triple clamp is uh, three quarters of an inch higher, bringing the handlebar up. The grips are two inches higher than on the standard Z650. So you're going to sit way more upright. And the grips are also an inch closer. So you're going to have a little bit more upright, slightly more compact top end feel. And then the bottom, uh, they drop the foot pegs about a half inch. So you have a little bit more leg room. So I think that it's hard to know exactly how that's all going to play out. The bend of the handlebar is flatter. So it's, you know, it's not arcing back on you. So you're going to have room on the bike. Uh, the seat height is a little tiny bit higher, less than an inch higher, but a bit higher just because of the shape of the seat. It's more of that padded seat look than the cupped, you know, kind of sport bike look. And they, they try to pull off this little look with the uh, uh, cast wheels where they're kind of like spokes. There's, there's a, a, a large number of small spokes. Right. They should have either just not done that to me or gone with, you know, wire, wire spoke rim because that right. it's, it's, it's always better to either say, I'm not going to, we're not going to go there or we're going there and we're doing it rather than kind of try to cheat it. But uh, maybe when we see it in person, you'll look at it and go, Oh yeah, that looks pretty cool. It looks very retro to me for, you know, the gold wheels and it, it does very reminiscent of the seventies. I think it looks cool actually. Yeah. The green one gets gold wheels, the gray one, which I don't imagine anybody's going to buy this gray version. The gray version to me just doesn't look that good. You know, the, the, the graphic on the tank, the, the green one has this cool pinstripe. It looks, it looks perfect. It looks like exactly like you want it to look. And the, the gray version of the Z650 RS kind of reminds me of that Yamaha 950 SCR. The, the thing when they took the bolt and tried to turn it into some kind of like scrambler bike. Right. It has kind of the right. same yeah. uh, graphic treatment as that. And it just look right to me. I mean, again, the marketplace will, you know, decide whether I know what I'm talking about or the people at Kawasaki knows, know what they're talking about. But boy, if I was buying this bike, it would be green or nothing. <laughs> I would, I would be holding out for that green, uh, you know, because it just looks so much better. I've never, in fact, it's rare that to me that you see a bike where the two colors are so, strike me as so different. Like one, I go, oh, that's perfect. Oh, I love that. That's so fantastic. And the other one is like, why did they pick that color? Why did they put those graphics on? But you know what? For every person like me, there's going to be somebody who's going to go, oh, the green one, that's boring. It's not the font. Ah, Dylan's got all kinds of graphics. It's cool, you know? So that's great. It's good to have a choice. And if I go to the intro for this, I'll be riding the green one. And they better have a green one for me to ride. <laughs> so right. that's all I can say. Yeah, I'm kind of, I, I got to say, I'm with you on that. Yeah, same motors, same chassis. Nothing different on that. So, again, this is another uh, bike to look forward to. It's great that, uh, you know, they got another version of this. That, the 650 is a great bike. When I looked at the ergonomics, the this Z650 is a fast handling bike. We've done comparisons of it with the Yamaha MTO uh, 7 and the Suzuki SV650. It's the most agile of the three. Years ago, when we did a test of the Suzuki SV650, and the Kawasaki Z650, it was always weird going from bike to bike because the the 650, the Suzuki was so solid and you know longer wheelbase, more raked out, and the Kawasaki was you know ultra agile. So when you jump from the Suzuki to the Kawasaki, you're like, oh, it's like oh, you turned way more fast, quicker than I wanted, or everything reacted more quickly. 
And if you went the other way, you're like, man, this thing seems ponderous, but they're both great, but they definitely have different personalities and just kind of depends on what, what you prefer. Some people like the stability, other people like the agility. So uh, this bike may, you know, when I look at the ergonomic changes they make, especially the wider bar, I'm thinking, wow, that bike's already agile. That wider bar is gonna make it turn even more. So it's, I, I really look forward to riding this bike. You know, uh, when, I, when the new bikes come out, you know, I kind of want to ride them all generally, you know, except for the super sport bikes or the motocross bikes, which I'm not, not capable of exploiting what they do. Almost every other bike I go, oh, I'm ride this. I'll check this out. This one is definitely higher on my checkout list. So I, I look forward to riding it. Right. So yeah, that's a, a wrap up of kind of what's been coming through the pipeline pre ICMA. And, uh, you know, like every year, ultimately, is exciting. There's nothing more exciting than new bikes and new variations on bikes and, and new things to get excited about riding, get excited about seeing. And uh, hopefully uh, everybody gets excited about listening to them and uh, reading about them on our website. So that's what we've got just starting to look forward to for 2022. There's going to be a lot coming in the next few months. So uh, hold on, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Well, thanks. Thanks for the wrap up, Don. I appreciate it. Um, we'll uh, we'll see how these different bikes flesh out and uh, we'll look forward to, to doing a, a similar wrap up um, each week as new bikes are launched. In this second segment, associate editor TJ Adams follows up with bike builder and long distance rider John Tagley who recently completed his 24-hour endurance run as he promised. John takes us through his various preparations and the effort it took to complete his personal mileage best. I hope you enjoy this episode. So how have you been since we last spoke? Good, good. Well, I did the trip and uh, then I was busy editing the video for the trip, which uh, when I'm editing, it's like, that's the only thing going on. Everything else always takes a back seat um, and I'm getting any free time that's possible. Uh, I'm, I'm editing, whether it's at home. Um, sometimes I can catch a little bit of editing at work. Um, I'll edit in the middle of the night to get extra time without anybody bothering me. My phone's not going off in the middle of the night. So that, that definitely helps. Um, and this video probably took 40, 50 hours of editing time. Wow even though it's only about nine minutes long. Um, but, you know, I, I had to make it entertaining. That's, that's what this is about, is to entertain people. So you can't just show, like, minutes and minutes of just highway footage. That's just not interesting. Yeah, you have to think how to put it together and put it together. Sure. Mm, double skills. So let's talk about the challenge you put upon yourself. You've got a Road King Classic, and this is your own... Harley Davidson motorcycle. That's correct. Yes. And you have choloed it. I'm well choloing it as we speak. <laughs> yes, it's it's in the process, which I gotta say is the most fun part of owning these bikes. Um, you know, once it's done, obviously it's it's a lot of fun to ride and, and to show people. Uh, but the process of building it is always the most fun. It's the most exciting, and everybody will will contact me and they're like, I can't wait till it's done, and I I always tell people like like try to enjoy the process because once it's done it's it's done that's it it's over it's like you know chris it's like christmas you know opening the presents is so exciting and and you have your present after that which is great but opening it is just very exciting 
Yes, it's the process. It's it's art, isn't it? In fact, I, it sort of is. Yeah, you could you could definitely say it's it's art um, because you are designing something, and that's the great thing about Harley. And have you had uh, this Road King Classic from new? Is is it a bike that was new to you? Uh, it's new to me. Yeah, I had just got it at the very beginning of July. Um, it's a 2002, so you know it's it's 19 years old. Wow. Yeah, I decided that um, the soft hill, even though I can continue to work on that, um, it's pretty much done. I could keep going, which I will, uh, but I needed more content. So how many, how many motorcycles have you got? How many are they? Are they Harley Davidsons? And how many have you got? Well, I have three bikes. Two are Harleys, and one is a uh 1975 honda cb750 which i bought uh in connecticut from some consignment shop wow. uh, uh man probably 2013 uh it was all cafe racered out um and then we took it a step further and put on um, a jockey shifter just to make it that much more difficult to ride <laughs> and for more uh, street credit and the thing is it's it's very interesting to ride. It's not. It, it definitely wouldn't be something you want to do an endurance ride on, though. Do you like a challenge? <laughs> I love a motorcycle challenge. Yeah, pretty much anything that that I'm uh, able to do with my time, with the time that I have, I'm I'm willing to do. As far as the challenge is concerned, sure. And so the Road King, what what are the main points of customization? What have you done to it, essentially? Well, so far, um, it got a stage one, which is very simply, it's a intake exhaust and a tune. Um, I did that all right here in the garage. And then I did stretched saddlebags. I did a rear fender extension. Um, I put on a bunch of engine covers. I did front forks, front fork, um, upper slider covers. I did all the lights are now LED. Uh, they were halogen and you know halogen's great it does look great on these nostalgic bikes but it really it really makes it look very 90s ish if they're halogen um so i try to make everything led excellent and um and that's i don't i don't want to say that's it but that's close to it i mean i did get the wheels but the wheels i haven't un like officially unveiled yet the video is still yet to come so one thing, one thing probably leads to another. You do one thing and then you see a little something else you can tweak. Absolutely. And, you know, if I had it my way, I wouldn't have done it in the order that I did it. COVID made things a little bit more difficult with getting parts. Uh, certain companies are in more high demand. So they're, you know, they'll tell you, you know, oh, it's 10 weeks waiting time or, you know, next year. Wow. Um, so I, some things I really don't have a choice on which order I do them in. So I was just sort of putting them on as they came in um yeah because normally i would start with probably wheels and exhaust but the wheels just came in maybe a week and a half ago frustrating <laughs> yeah frustrating but but exciting too and it's it's challenging me to make the bike look as cool as possible even though everything is sort of mixed matched at the moment um and it's difficult holding off on some parts. I have so many parts in this garage that I have yet to put on because it's like, if I put it on, the bike would just look way too funky uh, with this and not that, mm. if that makes any sense. Getting the balance. 
And um, so can we see what you've been doing to the road clean, the road king on your jet film YouTube channel? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I put up, I put up two videos on, well, technically three videos on this road king, if you include this past ride. But the first one was basically just revealing the bike and talking a little bit about the history of the bike and, and why I bought it, why I chose that year. And then uh, the second video was basically just the first round of mods. Uh, you know, the first things I did to it. And people really seemed to like that too. Um, it was it was interesting, like I said, the, the order of things that came in and some people questioned why I would do that first. And I had to explain that. Uh, it wasn't really my choice. It was just things came in at different weird times. And the way you do your films, the way you put them together is very appealing. It's really, uh, it, they're really nice to watch. They're lovely films. It's not just the information. Um, and you were saying last time we spoke, we had you on Motos and Friends before, for those who might have missed John, you were saying you have a lot of interaction with people who are following you. Yes, I do. I Almost everybody that comments, I try to comment back in one way or another, especially if they have questions um, and then people will reach out privately to ask questions and, uh, you know, the, they'll just ask for advice or, you know, what do, what do I think about their build and where should they go? Um, it's really cool to interact with people. People seem to be really in, I mean, obviously people are very into it. Motorcycles, especially Harleys, it's, it's personal for everybody um, because yes. I really don't know anybody that has a completely stock Harley. Um, so when people are customizing it, they put themselves into it. So it's just so personal. And, you know, so I also try not to just tell people what to do. I try to just suggest because I don't want to overstep my bounds as you know just someone offering advice yeah it's the idea isn't it you when you personalize something it's to be it's an individual sort of um representation of yourself so you you need to apply your own sort of feelings on whatever it is that you're putting forward sure yeah and when you're out in public you know your bike is sort of your ambassador you know meaning that people can kind of understand a little bit about you just by looking at how you modified your bike yes yeah that's a good way of putting it and you've you've got your road king um sort of tizzed up <laughs> as far as you can so far and didn't just want to go for a ride you decided to give yourself an almighty challenge <laughs> yes big time big time yeah the the idea was uh 24 hours um originally i had my heart set on this record and it kept leading me into different numbers. So I never was really able to find a hard number as far as a record. Um, so I decided maybe this would be better as just a 24 hour challenge against the, you know, the clock and yourself and how far are you willing to, to push your bike. And, you know, it's also a testament to how well of a mechanic you are too, you know, how well your bike performs, obviously, things can go wrong that are out of, you know, out of your control, but, um, it's really, it's, it's so satisfying to know when you completed it and you do your own work to your bike and you're like, that bike made it because I 
took the extra time to wrench things and torque them to spec and put on, you know, Loctite and just, you know, cross all the T's and dot all the I's. You know, I did that. The bike made it. It's just, yeah. it's, it's very satisfying. Doing a proper job and then it's you, yourself and your machine. Yeah, you're proud of your machine. More so than even yourself. You know, it's like the good boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's satisfying. And you decided that you would do a 24-hour challenge. 24 hours uh, to the second. Um, so much so that I didn't want anybody to, you know, call me out on anything and say, oh, well, you know, this doesn't look right and whatever. So I, I tried as best as I could to make it as legit as possible. So I took, um, we have, there's this website, time.gov, which is run by NIST, right? which is like the national standard of uh, like instruments and technology or something. I, I put it in the video. And basically that gives you the atomic clock, which is like the end all be all time and date. You, you can't alter it as far to my knowledge. Um, so I put that in the shot along with my trip odometer when I was resetting it. And then I showed it at the very end of the 24 hours, the same thing. That way it looks or that I couldn't alter it at all. So 24 hours to the second and as many miles as you can go. Did you set off sort of the crack of dawn? No, no. So that's, it's interesting to bring that up too. And I don't think I would have, um, I did, I waited till 11 a.m mostly because it rained that night and a little bit into the morning. And then it also coincidentally, it just happened to be better, you know, I'd let all the morning traffic go and then I'll start sort of midday. So I left my house around 10 a.m. Uh, looking for this one exit off of Route 86, which is in New York. And um, by the time I got there, it was, it was around 11 and I had a couple minutes just to set up, you know, the cameras and the atomic clock thing. Um, and then I left from there at 11 a.m. I didn't want to leave from my house because from my house, it would have been very inefficient to start, you know, to get to a highway where you can start doing 80 isn't isn't like right around the corner from here. So I started from there. It was Orange County, New York. And I just went west mm. all the way through the west end of New York, just south of all the Finger Lakes. And the first leg was basically from Orange County to Cleveland and Cleveland was supposed to be like you know the end of the first leg you know you can take a little bit of a break have something to eat and so I did um, I realized that the bike was not getting good gas mileage at all um, I was using the Harley Batwing on this ride which is <laughs> I mean it's essentially like a giant piece of of uh, plywood just going down the highway at 80 just pushing so much air so the engine, I mean, you have to use a lot of throttle to keep the, the bike at 85, along with a five-speed transmission. So the gear ratio is a little bit lower than a six-speed transmission. Uh, so the engine is spinning a lot faster. You're just burning a lot of gas. And I was doing about 100 miles to the tank, maybe 105 in some instances, but that was it. So there were in total 15 or 16 fuel stops in 24 hours. You can only imagine how much time I burned just fueling up. Wow. So it was it, quite quite an endurance. <laughs> yeah. It was also nice too. It was like a blessing in disguise. Every hundred miles I could get off the bike and just take a quick, you know, just like stretch. Um, nothing crazy though. Basically just filling up 
I take a sip of water and I'm basically just right back on the road, you know, because I knew every minute that I just did nothing was a mile or two that I could have gone and that would add up at the end. So, yeah, so I leave, I leave Cleveland and all of a sudden it just starts raining, just crazy. I could see that it's just a quick little storm, but nonetheless, it was like 10 minutes of just complete downpour traffic. It didn't stop, but it came to like 50, 60 miles an hour, which was probably for the best, especially on a bike. And then uh, finally the rain stops and everything gets cool. And then the sun starts setting. Finally, my pants start to dry off and it's now things are getting better. I'm warm again and I'm going through Columbus and Cincinnati. And then I hit Kentucky, which is where I really set on the speed. And that's where things like kind of got really fun is Kentucky because I really, I got a lot of miles in Kentucky and then it was at the very southern end of Kentucky that I hit the thousand mile mark at 14 and a half hours, which I was really proud of compared to last year, which took me about 19 hours to hit a thousand miles. Yeah, you've been pumping the air. <laughs> That's a big difference. <laughs> big difference, big difference for sure. Also, big difference of a bike too. So you mentioned the rain. Did you have any wardrobe dramas? I mean, were you fully equipped for rain and cold or sunshine? No, that's a good question. So I, I knew, you know, I, I, I ride a lot. So I know that the moment the sun goes down, even in the middle of the summer, it can get cool at 80 miles an hour. You just, you have mm. that, like, you know, moist air. So I actually threw on a pair of um, thermals, like really thick thermals under my pants. So thermals, I had good wool socks and I had, I think I was wearing like Doc Martin low top boots, which, yeah, they weren't even boots, they were just shoes. Uh, for my uppers, I was wearing just a t-shirt, then like a moisture wicking thin shirt, a fleece, and then I was wearing um, like a soft shell jacket, which is shown in the entire video. Um, and yeah, that managed to keep me fine. I mean, I was pretty much dry except for my legs going through going through uh, Cleveland um, I wore gloves thin gloves but um, those were my hands were fine uh, I did bring body warmers I had extra body warmers left over from the last year's skiing season so I actually stuck them a couple of them to my chest at around like midnight just because it was it was definitely getting chilly out and then I put not to get too graphic but um, I stuffed a couple of hand warmers like deep into my pockets <laughs> to keep everything down there warm uh, because that can really, that can inhibit you. Those delicate areas. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I pretty much stayed pretty warm. There was one time, I think it was like the very Western end of Virginia that I, it was getting very chilly and I ended up just grabbing a, a quick cup of coffee just to warm me up. And then that did the trick. Yeah, I was good. Yeah, when you do get chilly when you're on a motorcycle, that's when you sort of start to shut down. You get sort of low energy. And I guess if you were riding way after midnight, you'd been riding all day. Um, you must have had some low energy points. Yeah, that definitely. That was around the same time. Uh, like, like you said, when you get cold, you just start to kind of just fall off that, that, that momentum that you had because you start focusing on all the cold and not, you know, the goal. You just want to alleviate that cold, shake that cold off. Um, but if, if you're prepared for it properly, 
then that's not a factor. And I was just commenting to somebody who's looking to do an iron butt. He was looking for a couple pieces of advice. And that's one of the things I said, you know, really prepare for cold and, and any kind of rain. Because those are, those are like the two things that are really going to slow you down. I had a little once, once we'd um, had a, a few messages back and forth and you were saying what you were going to do. I had a look and saw that this is called the iron butt challenge. Well, sort of, sort of. The, the iron butt, you know, the iron butt association, they have so many different challenges, but their most basic and simple, I think their easiest as well, is the 1,000 miles in 24 hours, which is not really that easy. It's still an accomplishment. Mm. And but the list of people that have done it, it's, it's huge. Tons of people have done it because it's kind of a fun challenge and it doesn't really have to take you 24 hours. Like just in this uh, with this ride, I did it in 14 and a half, but I was pushing myself where you can you can really take it easy and you can use the whole time and you really don't even have to go that fast to hit a thousand miles. I think the average speed you need to keep is something like in the 40s, like 45 miles an hour. That much, yeah, never ceases to amaze me actually. The different ways that motorcyclists come up with to enjoy their machines, <laughs> yeah. So, um, how about your machine? <laughs> did it do well, or did it feel very sad and abused? It did incredibly well. Um, I did have one issue in West Virginia where my shifter it's like this, um, it's kind of hard to explain, it's like this lever that comes off of your shifter spline. It had just, it loosened, um, all it took was um, an Allen wrench. So it had loosened and I didn't know it had loosened until the whole shifter assembly just fell on my foot. Oh. Just while I was in the middle of riding, um, something hit my foot, I looked down and I'm like, damn it. Uh, and so I pulled over and fortunately I had the foresight to actually bring a, like a box of tools, uh, just basic tools, but Needless to say, like I, I could have ripped this entire bike apart with the tools that I brought. Uh, but this was just a simple fix, one Allen wrench, and I was right back on the road in five minutes. Other than that, there was another issue that I didn't even mention because it wasn't really much. Um, it was more of just like a stupid mistake on the people that actually mounted the tire on my new wheel. Because uh, I, I did the challenge with just the new front wheel not the rear wheel just it's a long story we won't get into it but the front wheel wasn't balanced so the entire time my front end was vibrating um, and I had brought it back to the place and I said look you guys didn't balance my wheel and I just rode on this 1600 mile trip thanks a lot and uh, they said oh well you didn't bring us your your uh, brake rotors and I've never even heard of that because I've bought wheels before that have had tires mounted and had no brake rotors with them and they operated just fine. Uh, but in this instance, whatever, the whole front end was vibrating, but I didn't really see it as big of a deal to actually even mention it in the film. Mm, it's a bit of a niggle, isn't it? But uh, sounds like you got over it. What, um, did you miss out taking something that you should have taken? Anything you feel you should have taken? Absolutely not. No. No, and actually, that's something I, I definitely want to drive is that don't take too much. Like, don't think you need all these little comforts and things because all it ends up becoming is just a distraction. Just take like basic stuff, basic human need stuff. Just keep yourself warm, dry, 
Um, what helps is if you bring your own food and water or drink like Powerade or maybe, maybe you're actually don't bring a Red Bull because it's carbonated and I've had a Red Bull explode on me before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, try to limit the amount of stuff that you bring because it, it ends up becoming a distraction. Uh, headphones, I would say definitely. You got to keep yourself entertained for 24 hours. And when you get into the, the wee hours of the night, you know, God forbid you start like kind of dozing off or just kind of like sort of tapering off like you don't want that to happen and you know you turn up the volume put on a heavy metal thing and, and you know wake yourself up and that's what i ended up doing and it worked so also uh you know like a charger of some sort some kind of usb charger that way you know you can make sure that you you have a phone just in case you do have an emergency things like that like any little things that need to be charged um, that will help you in an emergency or help you somehow get more miles. Yes. Hey, that's good advice. Um, and did you dip it? It sounds as though you dipped into several states there. I'm not that brilliant on geography here, but yeah. So it was ended up, I didn't actually even count the states. It was New York. Um, I just barely touched Pennsylvania on the way there. Uh, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and then uh, Pennsylvania again, New Jersey, and then back to New York. Okay, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in 24 hours, sure. Now, technically, in the 24 hours, I never actually touched Jersey. I ended up finishing the 24-hour mark somewhere in East Pennsylvania, and I still had 100 miles to go before I even got home. But I wanted to make sure I didn't get too close to home and have the clock still running. I wanted to have nice open highway and just finish out at, at as fast of, of a speed that I could. And of course, a good time of day because you started at about 11, you said, so you were. So I finished at 11. So you're riding back yep. into the sun by then. You must have seen a nice dawn. I awesome dawn. Yeah, I put it in the video too. I put a little montage uh, of, and it was a very uplifting song that I played because it's like, all right, you know, you made it through the night, you know, and, and now the sun's coming up and it, it really was beautiful as I was coming through. I think it was like, I think it finally popped up somewhere in, in Virginia and the surrounding cornfields and, you know, the, the cows and everything. And you see, you see the sun coming up over the mountain. It was really cool. The, the dew and, and all the fog, um, it made for some great shots on the camera and, uh, it was it definitely like warms the soul finally seeing that sun again after nine hours of being in the dark so it was it was nice awesome that sounds awesome good for the soul <laughs> yeah yes now you and so you've made this you've put this film together and you obviously spent many hours editing and getting that into place and it's already available now can people have a look now on your youtube channel yeah 100 percent um yeah it's on the uh it's the latest video on the youtube channel on a, my channel jet film and yeah it took it took about nine days to edit it i shot about 60 gigs of footage which really isn't that much um and then you know and then i did my whole storytelling i call it the testimony part when i'm telling the story which i try to limit that part where i'm just in front of the camera talking to the camera about the trip i try to let the trip or whatever I'm doing, speak for itself as much as possible. And then the testimony basically just fills in the holes and helps 
you know, with the story moving it along just just nicely. It's also good to get a change of, you know, camera scenery. Uh, people don't like, you know, certain shots lasting too long. Nice. More pleasurable to watch and not just sort of a documentary. I, I'll put a link. So it's it's JET Films and I'll put a link in the show notes so people can have a look at that. And you're happy, as we said earlier, for people to interact with you and message you, put comments. On your... Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I, I love getting messages. I love um, helping people out. And people will say all the time how, you know, they're like, we really appreciate. And this is something I like never have seen before in other videos, uh, comment sections is people saying like, thank you. Thank you for the footage. Thank you for doing this. Uh, and I don't know, sometimes it makes me question like, am, is my stuff really that good? You know, I, to me, I'm just, I'm just trying. I'm trying to make a good video and I'm trying to give good information, but I didn't really realize how helpful some of this information can be. Um, and I guess that's sort of why I started focusing on cholos because i noticed that there's barely any content on cholo building um on on youtube so i sort of feel like i filled in that hole i think so I, we had a really good reaction the last time you were on motos and friends and i've learned you know a bit about cholo i didn't even know what it was initially um yeah. and i think it's something a lot of people can in everyday life can do for their self-satisfaction is you know to to cholo their motorcycles and this challenge also the 24-hour ride again i think is something that's probably achievable for most people to have a go at so i think it's great if they can have a chat with you and get advice from you sure sure and i encourage people that are interested in doing this to, to just go and try it it's it really was i wasn't like talking out of my butt when i said at the very end of the video like it was an awesome experience I truly meant it. I would love to do this again. It's it's really cool because you're pushing yourself, you're pushing the bike. And like I mentioned earlier, um, you're pushing your own skill level in the mechanic part of your build, like your own mechanical skill. So it's just really, it's really satisfying when it's finally complete. Self-satisfaction, something that you've put together yourself and then you've made it work. Yeah, and you watch it in action. And you're, you're not just riding it down the block, you know, to the deli or whatever. I mean, you're pushing this thing to the limit. Uh, there's just something really cool about it. You know, it's, it's really like, like deeply satisfying. Well, it's an, in, an intense time with yourself as well, isn't it? It is. I mean, I'm not really like, you know, doing any psychology on myself during that time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm, I think, the majority of the time I was just like focusing on the music, just making sure that I was on the roads that I was supposed to be on or how much longer I'm supposed to be on this road and, you know, just not crashing, things like that. Uh, the bike did have a number, probably many dozens of minor speed wobbles uh, as I was going over, like crossing into another lane at high speed. If they were paved at different times, sometimes there's a little bit of a, you know, like an edge on on that lane change and that little lip will cause this minor speed wobble. And at first it was a little, it got me all like kind of crazy, but uh, you know, after a little while it was, it was nothing. Like I knew it was coming 
And um, I got some great advice from an old time Harley guy. And he said, the best thing you can do is just relax on the handlebars if you go into a speed wobble. Because the way he described it was, if you ever watch MotoGP, these guys, they go into a wobble and they fly off. The second they fly off, the bike straightens itself out and just goes calm again until it eventually crashes into something. But it keeps going up own impetus. Yeah. So the best thing you can do is just not freak out and just be kind of easy on the handlebars. Don't try to fight it the whole time. So that's, that's what I did. And it just didn't bother me anymore. Speed wobbles. Well, that's, that's, that's an achievement. It sounds very self-satisfying. So you had um, a goal to go as many miles as possible in 24 hours. How many miles did you actually achieve? At the exact end of 24 hours, I had 1,628.6 miles, which to me, that is, that is so far beyond anything else I've ever done. Most I ever did was, was 1,000. So, and I really wanted to break 1,500. And so 1,628, that was, that was the end. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely, I was ear to ear when I got home. And then it was lights out like an hour later. <laughs> I bet. And what um, sort of plans have you got coming up next? <laughs> up next is uh, the wheels for sure. So I'm going to do a big wheels video, similar to how I did the first big video on the Road King uh, on that those parts. This is going to be like a you know full production. I'm actually calling in a couple other people to help out. Um, I have somebody at, that I work with, uh, their, their niece is just getting into filming and editing. So we might take her on to try to just gain some experience. Um, and I feel like this kind of experience filmmaking is, is fun as well. It's not just like some dry filming, you know, like filming, uh, you know, watching cement harden. Like this is, it's, it's supposed to be fun. It's motorcycle stuff and it's loud and it's fast and these cool angles you can do. So I have some big plans for the wheels video. Uh, and I mean, I don't wanna give a lot of it away, but um, it, it should be a really fun video to watch. Sounds good. So it's also nice to have a novice involved. You know, it's good because you're looking at somebody who doesn't know it all. And you know, if, if you're a lay person yourself watching that type of thing, I think you glean a lot more. Sure, sure. And filled with enthusiasm to and maybe even new ideas. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I don't claim to know it all when it comes to filmmaking. Uh, and I get inspiration just like anybody else does. You know, I see things, I, I hear a great song and all of a sudden it'll, it'll set off an idea like, wow, if I start with this song, the shot could do this. And that's, that's how you set it off. And that'll like grab the hook and yeah. So a lot of times it's actually a song that, that makes, um, makes the idea happen for me for that, for those intro, those big intros. You're innovative and you've got more than one talent. You know, your filmmaking is fantastic. So next project you have coming up and you make something of, we'll, we'll love to have you again. Um, and if you come up with any ideas, then, then let us know. Yeah, sure. Un unfortunately, I don't know if there's going to be any more big rides um, especially for the rest of the year, just because the weather's cooling down dramatically. And, you know, like I said, while we were doing the podcast, you know, the cold is like a major inhibitor. So if I do do anything, it would be soon. 
and it would be I would be making a beeline to Florida. But um, I, I don't see any more big rides until uh, until the springtime. But that's okay. I mean, what you're you're doing, you know, the Cholo. Oh, there's going to be tons of that. I think it's really interesting for people. A lot of people, you see their bikes done and looking gorgeous. And, you know, I've been looking through, obviously, trying to work out where to post and promote things. But nobody's actually giving a whole lot of information on how to do it and make mistakes and try things. And like I said before, drill holes in there. Motorcycle and right. just have a go at stuff. Yeah, it's, it's definitely nerve-wracking. But, you know, in the majority of people that are involved with cholos in some way or another, they actually, they refer to it as a, as a vikla. Right. So if you ever run into somebody that says like, what's a cholo and, and you're not saying it right, it it's probably because they're probably from the West Coast and on the West Coast, they call it a vikla. And the West Coast is like the Mecca of vikas and cholos. So the further away you get from the West Coast, the less and less you're going to see it. Um, so there's a whole lot more people in the industry that call it Viglas than Cholos. I did find that. I was having a look and Cholo came up as men and that sort of thing. And Vikla definitely was a more, a more used term. Absolutely. Yeah. And, but I, I think I'm using that sort of as an attraction point because I'm calling it something else. And I think that people sort of see it as like, wow, this guy doesn't call it what we call it. Maybe he's he's got wildly different ideas than the same old Vikla we've been seeing for our entire lives. And yeah, it's a bit of a distinctive term that is attached to you, if you like. Yes. Yeah, I think it's a good just, idea. Just the way like the English language, the way in the United States we call certain things, and then in England they they call a bathroom like a water closet. And it's yeah. just it's the same thing it's just we call it different things and some people really have a hard time letting go of the vikla thing and they'll try to correct me and they'll even sometimes get nasty too about it and um i'll either not respond to them or i'll just say look you know geography you know people call it different things so and you're right and there are many words and some of them just do not make sense at all but that is the way it is as you say it's the yeah the language you know sort of grows and different areas call things different sure by different names i find it fascinating actually <laughs> so what do you what do you ride i've got um an envy agusta brutale an rc 800 and um, my husband's got a kawasaki z900 i have to think because he's he changes his a lot we get a lot of magazine bikes that we test um and sometimes you really knows with us depends on where we are geographically so we chop and chop a lot but that's, that's my own one and you, you have an rst8 is that what you said no it's an mv augusta italian exotica oh envy okay right 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 looks beautiful <laughs> makes me look good <laughs> is that the four cylinder three cylinder and how long have you had that um i've had that probably about seven months okay you like it i love it it's loud. It's got an SC project pipe on it and it's fantastic. Well, I love it. That's, that's what I, I've learned too. Like just try new things. Um, I try not to get too funky uh, because I don't know. I, I don't want to, like, I'll do these rides. I just did this ride too. And we had a girl come with us, which is unusual for us. Um, it's unusual to, it, it, you know, obviously women riders don't even compare to the amount 
of male riders. Yeah. So it's tough for us. So we had a girl come with us and she's a great rider. She's got a new Harley. Um, and I thought like, wow, this is, this would be great for the channel to bring in like, Hey, we have a girl or more dynamic. Yes. Um, and she's really cool on camera, but the ride itself, there wasn't anything really exciting that happened. So I was really torn. Like, do I make a video? Do I not? So I'm actually, I decided, all right, let me do an Instagram video because I really have to be careful with what I put on my YouTube channel. I don't want to put something that turns out to be a complete flop. Yeah, you'll taint that sort of the, the image that you've built, the, the process that you're, you're building, if you like. Right. So I try to stick to this very defined formula that I've been doing. And although my channel isn't huge, um, to me, it's grown tremendously in the last year. I mean, last July, 2020, I broke a thousand subscribers. And then a year later, I'm at 9,000, which to me, that's tremendous, tremendous progress for, for me because it, it took about seven years to get to a thousand subscribers. And it sounds as though they are organic, honest subscribers. You know, a lot of people know how to wangle numbers and really that's rubbish, you know? Right, no clickbait. These are just like you said, they're organic. It's like, these are real people that actually want to know. Like they actually like the content, not just clicked on it because they got duped into clicking on it or something like that. Yeah, no, it's good, it's impressive. Good for you. Well, it's been terrific speaking with you. Um, you know, we'll put uh, this podcast out and I'm sure you'll get a lot of interest back. As I say, we had a lot of reaction last time. And thank you. And we'll hopefully have another chat with you, you know, a few, a few weeks down the track. Great. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Cheerio. Bye.